Did that kill it? I can see you though. Welcome everybody to Startup Hype Man's Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan, aka the Raj Nation. I am your show's host and the founder and creative force behind Startup Hype Man, helping startups everywhere build their hype by creating a message that sings. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, and musicians about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help creative thinkers like you and I better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. It's about the mindset, processes, and strategies to help you build a bad... Now, before we dive into today's conversation, I would like to extend an invitation to join our tribe at StartupHypeMan.com. Enter your email address there, and you will never miss another episode of this show, getting an email in your inbox every single week when we drop new episodes on Mondays. You'll also get my weekly thoughts, strategies, and ideas on how to build up your hype and create a raving fan base. All right, let's dive in now to this week's conversation of Discover Your Inner Awesome. Welcome, everybody, to Discover Your Inner Awesome. Today on the show, we have with us Lucas Gariglia. Lucas is the co-founder, president, and director of sales at Robo Creative. Lucas, thank you for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I'm excited to have you. We were actually introduced by Rob Cressy, who was on the show last season in one of my all-time favorite episodes. So if he endorses you, that means we're off to a good start already. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, Rob's an awesome guy. I mean, we've known each other forever. And, uh, you know, as we were kind of talking prelim uh, before jumping into this, um, we're just constantly always trading, uh, you know, trading the entrepreneurial uh, roadblocks and glories and uh, celebrations and everything along the way. So I'm um, certainly glad that he uh, he hooked us into uh, to each other because uh, I think that everybody, <clears throat> we're all kind of in the same mental space of, uh, you know, just being wanted to be networked with everybody and, you know, sharing kind of some of those, the paths of being an entrepreneur and either making it happen or not making it happen at times. You said roadblocks, glories, and everything along the way. That's like literally what this show is about. So let's dive in. Our topic today <laughs> is how do you survive a pivot? Why is this on your mind? Why is this important to you? Um, so, you know, I mean, the, the biggest thing I've been doing a lot of, uh, a lot of public speaking and um, kind of in different spaces and atmospheres, um, ranging from people specifically in companies in our industry too, but also ranging to graduate classes at um, School of the Art Institute, Columbia College, and um, I mean, even down to high schools and, uh, and even grade schools. And a lot of the time I, you know, I, I go into those situations and those, um, those speaking opportunities. And some of them are a little bit more pointed, to, you know, specifically to the demographic and, you know, whether that's a little bit more business pointed or entrepreneurial or not. But I, I find myself and found myself um, consistently kind of rooting back to that idea of, of the pivot and, um, you know, and explaining that along the, the road of, you know, whether that's, you know, your, your business venture or your, your dreams or whatever that is that, um, that the pivot you know, I guess the pivot point, um, really kind of comes into play. And so 
and, and understanding and kind of, you know, I, I don't know if that's revitalizing everybody else's ideas that it, that it is okay to pivot, that if you find yourself at one of those roadblocks or you find yourself just kind of at the end of that road where, you know, either it's not working or you need to kind of figure out a different approach to something that that's okay. And that that doesn't mean that, you know, it's the end of the, it's the end of the world, it's the end of the road or that you failed because, you know, being able to pivot and head in a little bit of a different direction or a complete different direction or veering off that immediate course and, you know, jumping back onto it later down the line. Um, you know, I, I think that that's, that's just a really important part. Um, I think of just, you know, the world in general, but also kind of the entrepreneurial, uh, you know, path to, I guess, in life. To borrow from the basketball world, when you pivot, it's when you've been dribbling, you stop, you pick up your dribble, and then you have one foot down and the other foot is essentially like rotating around. I'm assuming that's where the entrepreneurial world got the term pivot from. I could be wrong. But that said, uh, in order to pivot, you have to first be dribbling, which means you have to first get on the court, which means you have to first be involved in the game in the first place. So let's, right, let's right. kind of, let's take it back a little bit and maybe a long bit. You tell me, but, uh, Lucas, where did you grow up? Uh, not only like city, but in terms of environment you were in, where did you grow up and how do you feel that began to shape you? Sure. Sure. Um, that's a perfect, uh, actually example. Um, <laughs> um, I came from kind of an athletic background too. And so, I mean, we can get back to that too, but, um, I grew up in Chicago, um, grew up in Rogers park area and, um, it was just a really, I mean, it was kind of, I mean, now has gentrified even more, um, as much of Chicago has, but, um, it was a really diverse neighborhood. I mean, I had, um, you know, I had athlete friends. I was always, um, I was like the skater kid. So, you know, I was kind of in that realm too. And then I had, you know, some of the, uh, the rougher and tougher city kids and, you know, some of the, some of the gangbanger kids. And, um, I think that that, I mean, I, I come from kind of a, a very, <clears throat> a very musical family, but kind of a very open-minded artistic family too. And I think, you know, a lot of the, the rooting is from there too, but just growing up in that atmosphere, um, I think just exposed me to a lot of different things. You know, I, I mean, even, we'll, we'll delve kind of deeper into the music side of it too. But, um, you know, I was growing up with friends who are listening to hip hop, friends who are listening to R and B friends who are listening to metal and, you know, kind of all over the place. And so I think that really early on, um, you know, that, that, that kind of exposed me to just obviously understanding how, how large and diverse the world is too, but also, you know, beginning to, to kind of cultivate who I am as a person and, you know, what my beliefs and goals and morals all are, but also realizing that, you know, I could take little aspects of, of, you know, different people and different vibes and, you know, different kind of sections of, I guess, the world and universe and, and kind of meld those into what, what is my own and, you know, what I agree with and what I disagree with and what are my dislikes and my likes, I guess. Of those genres that you mentioned, you had friends listening to metal, hip hop, R&B, rock, which genre did you gravitate towards? Um, the funny thing is that, so my, um, both my mom and dad, um, they were, they were in a band together when I was growing up that was more rock based. And like like I your think mom and dad played in the same band. They, they were in the <laughs> same band. And then ironically, when I, you know, when I got deeper into it, my dad was actually, he started the band with me that, you know, we went on to, to do a lot of touring and, you know, um, a lot bigger stuff too. But, um, so I, I kind of grew up around, 
I mean, they were always in, in kind of the, the rock world. And um, I grew up more specifically exposed, I guess, to a lot more R&B and hip hop. I mean, that was the stuff that I really gravitated towards like early, early on. I was a huge, huge Boys to Men fan, huge Bone Thugs and Harmony, huge, you know, Dr. Dre and all that. Yeah. And I really didn't even <laughs> like, I never even got into rock until about, like seventh grade and and that's when i was exposed to you know when all the new metal stuff and corn and deftones and um and all that stuff was coming out and i think that it was just <clears throat> it was just a different experience to me because i had never been i i no one really knew what that music was and actually i remember i mean my dad and i i mean we we would go to Ozfest, you know pretty pretty regularly every year and um and you know, back when Lollapalooza was still a, a big touring, you know, not just one day or three day festival now. Um, but uh, it was just an interesting kind of curve for me because I think all along the lines being exposed to something and kind of having this like, you know, aha moment of like, I, I don't even know what this is. And then really diving into it and, you know, immersing myself into it. And I even find I mean, in the last three three to five years, uh, I've, I've finally been exposed a little bit more to uh, to country music because it's been so enormous. Um, you know, my other my my better half is from the uh, is from North Carolina, and so <clears throat> I found myself kind of reimmersing myself into into country music, which I would have never ever imagined in a million years. <laughs> but um, trying to you know just expose myself to, to different things and understanding that obviously there's a reason why a gazillion people are into country music. I'm, I was seemingly missing something. As I learned uh, four or five years ago when I did a experiment of listening to only country for 30 days, uh, <laughs> it is exactly the same thing as hip hop. Just yeah, it, different, I mean, different musically, but they're all talking about girls. They're all talking <laughs> about their problems Right. And whiskey. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, getting drunk. And they're also, all t- yeah. they're also telling stories, which is the basis of hip hop and right. appears to be the basis of country as well. It's not forties. It's, it's whiskey. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just different, different alcohol preference. Um, right. Okay. You said your dad, you and your dad started a band together. Correct. We can't gloss over that. Tell, tell us about that. And especially one that's influenced by like corn I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm trying to picture a dad being into corn. So this is interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was crazy. So, um, I mean, so he, you know, I grew up, um, you know, kind of learning from him. I mean, he's, he's such an amazingly talented, uh, musician. And so my mom was the singer in the band. And so that's where I kind of, you know, she, I, I got kind of my vocal roots from her. Um, he plays a million different stringed instruments. So, you know, he taught me how to play guitar, and so back then in high school, I mean, we started, the project was called Lift Point. Um, and we, I, I started putting it together uh, towards the end of freshman year. And um, my high school didn't have, it wasn't kind of a big, a big arts and music scene. So I, I was kind of trying to pull anybody that I could, um, you know, to try to get this project together. And um, I, nobody really wanted to go as hard at it as, as I did. So, um, I couldn't really find anybody that was that committed. And so it was just kind of an easier situation to say, Hey dad, I'm writing these songs. Um, you know, would it be possible for you just to sit? I mean, he was playing guitar in, in his band and I wanted to play guitar and, and I actually didn't even, <laughs> wasn't even really thinking about singing in my band, but there was nobody else to basically fill that void. So, um, I kind of take, 
took the role of guitar and vocals and then put him on bass. And then we didn't have a drummer at the time. So we were basically just borrowing the drummer of his band at the time. And so we would, we would come in and before they would have rehearsals, um, you know, we'd kind of play through like the, the two or three original songs that I had. We were doing a couple different covers from, uh, we didn't do any corn covers, um, but we did, we covered Deftones back then. We had a couple stain song, stain songs. I think we did a Foo Fighters song. Like, <laughs> yeah. Back before he went, before he went country, they were still on <laughs> the, the, the heavier scene, but, yeah, it was it was crazy. It was a really interesting experience because you know it kind of started uh, started kind of on a whim, and um, I mean we we took it pretty far. And I mean he was, you know, he was with us for the first you know five six years, and so we were we, you know we were getting bigger locally, and then we started touring kind of regionally, and um, so it was just a great experience to um, you know to be able to one to to be able to play with with my dad and just to have all those experience and share kind of the growing experience too. I mean, granted there was also some, some friction moments because that was just, you know, in my teenage angst years. And so it was a weird dichotomy of, you know, being in a, a situation that I was kind of commanding. And so we had many, a uh, many an argument and many a, a weird exchange, like in practice where, you know, I was kind of coming down on him because he was playing something wrong. And it was, it was just like a weird, role reversal situation yeah i can imagine and i'm wondering too like what's touring with your dad like and if you're in high school at the time is, is it <laughs> is it like you know you go to a city and then you need to like get lunch or dinner so you're like dad you're you're getting this right yeah. <laughs> uh yeah i mean it was just it we we're i mean we've always been super super close so um you know there was it, it was never kind of a weird situation it was just more so um I guess the the situation in general was was kind of interesting and bizarre to people. I mean, we'd go and we'd play, you know, various different college towns and different radio shows and, um, you know, whether we would do like meet and greets or, you know, signings before or after. And, you know, it's me. It was only a three-piece band, so it would be me and, you know, two other people. And we'd play and everybody would come up and be like, oh, you know, I mean, it looks like you guys have kind of an age gap going on here. I was like, yeah, well, that's actually my dad. And so then everybody was completely kind of floored by that too. So yeah, it was a, it was definitely a, a, an amazing experience. And, you know, I mean, one of the hardest points was getting to, you know, we were just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and, you know, he couldn't kind of step away from, from his normal life to be able to, <laughs> to join a full-time rock band. So um, we had, uh, the last show that we played in Chicago with him was, uh, was at Double Door. And I remember I still have the, uh, I still have the set list and like some of the guitar picks from that show. And it was just kind of like a, a bittersweet moment, you know, when we knew that we had to just kind of push, push a little bit more forward because he, you know, he was obviously behind us a hundred percent and, you know, it was kind of a, a, a weird situation and, and heartbreaking situation, but <clears throat> very, very cool experience though. And, and rest in peace, double door at that. A great venue. Yeah. It, close yeah. Absolutely. Close both of its double doors. <laughs> and yeah, all the doors. <laughs> Uh, you said you got big, like how, like, I don't know if it's easy to quantify that, but how, how big would you say the band got? Um, so we were, I mean, we were hitting the, the touring circuit pretty hard. I mean, we were, uh, we were doing a lot of touring with Chevelle. Um, we were doing a lot of touring with, um, there was uh, kill Hannah, um, and Chevelle was probably the, the last of the larger tours, but yeah, that's um, a pretty big time name. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, all the all the kind of the heavy hitters back in that realm, um, you know, Taproot and, and Ten Years and you know all that. I could I could go on for days, but that might date me even more. But <laughs> um, but we, um, you know, I guess the coining moment. We played um, the biggest show we ever played was in uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, and there was about six thousand people there. And you know, this is actually kind of one of the moments that I also. I also touch on a lot in, in any of kind of the speaking situations too, because, you know, if I had, um, I mean, there's many occasions in life that I wish I could go back to and, and, you know, take it in a little bit more, but, but that honestly is, is, is one of the quintessential moments where I, I wish that I, I just had a little bit more time to, to really step back and, you know, to take all that in, I think for, for so many reasons, and, you know, this applies in so many different scenarios, but, you know, for me, that that moment, I mean, there was literally so many people that I could only see past, you know, a certain amount. And then it, the crowd just kept going. And um, it was it was a really funny show because we actually as soon as we came out to play, literally the first big chord that I hit, my strap lock popped. And so the guitar fell, hit the ground. And I just remember thinking to myself, <laughs> these people are going to absolutely eat us alive now. Um, you know, and it was like the heavier rock crowd. So they, they're, they're not the most polite in certain situations. Um, so I kind of turned back to our, uh, to our guitar tech and I was just like, I, we have to fix this. And so he grabbed, he grabbed some gaff tape and we kind of just taped it back together. And I stepped back up to the mic and I was like, do you guys mind if we, uh, if we try that again? And, um, like the roar of the crowd was kind of just overwhelming at that point. And, you know, then we just, we did our thing, but you know, that was, that was just the moment where I now in retrospect, I look back and I think that, you know, there's, there's so many people out there who dream to, you know, either have the ability or have the talent to pick up a guitar and, and learn to play. There's so many people who then want to take the next step and say, I want to write original material and, and share that with people and, you know, get the balls to actually do that with somebody and then, you know, take it further and further. And, you know, for us to get to that point and, you know, to, to be blessed with enough talent and enough, you know, just support structure to be able to do that. And, and people who are <clears throat> into the material was another thing. And, you know, at that point, and this is also something that, you know, kind of points back to my entrepreneurial, I guess, mentality of, of just, you know, never, I, I guess something is never enough you know, and you're, you're constantly focused on what is the next big move and the next big picture and the next, you know, getting to that next revenue point and then the bigger one. And we want more of this. We want more employees. We want more square footage. And, and that's all great. But I think that at a certain point, you know, really staying grounded and being able to, to step back from those things and, and see what you've built and, you know, really appreciate those moments because, you know, not to get all, you know, ethereal and sentimental but you know once those moments are gone you can't you can't go back to those yeah and i think it's uh, for entrepreneur you know in one sense it's like the the music sense right but that's so applicable to the entrepreneurial journey especially when you're grinding it out every day it's just it's so hard to take that step back and actually like celebrate a win however big or small that might be yeah absolutely and that's i mean i i think that everybody just you know, as a world, we just, we tend to miss that. And I think that, you know, because of everybody's <clears throat> attention spans and, you know, social media and everything is just, it's so quick, quick to eat up and quick to feed. And if you don't, if you don't step back and I, I'm, I, I literally, I'm still guilty of this 500% of the time. And, and I really do try to, to every time just really step back and, and realize things. And, 
Um, you know, you can, I, I, I take a lot from my, my grandfather started a, um, <clears throat> started a business out of the, the back of his car. And I mean, it grew to be a, uh, a pretty enormous operation on the East coast. And, um, he passed away, um, a couple years ago and it was, it was just a situation that, you know, towards, towards the end of his life and all the business conversations and, you know, all the, all the conversations that we had and, you know, he would check on, check in on me every now and then, you know, how's the business doing? How's the business doing? You know, and his, his big thing was if you got to, if you got to year five, you, you were going to be okay because at that point you either figured it out or you figured it out enough to be able to lie to people, to convince people that you had it figured out. Um, but you know, I mean, it was just one of the, another, one of those moments where it was like, you know, towards, towards the end of his life, the, the most important things were being surrounded by his family and, you know, all the tangible things that you work towards, you know, whether that's in your scope or in your, you know, your, your path to, to say that I want to have all of these things and I want to have boats and I want to have houses and, you know, all of these things that, in the end, you know, are just kind of materialistic objects that don't, don't really, you know, as far as we all know, those aren't coming with us, you know, to wherever we're all going. Thus far. So, you know, our overall topic today is on surviving a pivot. Thus far, I've, I've, as you've spoken, I've heard two pivots, one mini, one bigger come out. Well, the bigger one would have been when your dad had to leave the band. Actually, to me, that's a pivot and having to figure out what to do next. The smaller one was your guitar strap breaking on stage in that moment. You know, that's a mini <laughs> right. pivot right there, right? It's like, a, what do we do now? And then you get some duct tape, basically, and, and, and you play on. That was a huge, oh, shit pivot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would guess, yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong here, so you end, up, you end up going to DePaul University to get your bachelor's degree. You and I are both fellow Blue Demon alumni. All right. Uh, which means we've both... You mentioned bat. You mentioned you played basketball before, so you probably were good enough to play on DePaul's team at one point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something there, or that just means we both uh, hung out at Halligan at a lot. Of yeah, exactly. Moments. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I feel like your your big pivot now comes in departing from the music world, right? Because you, 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 it's not what you're doing now. And maybe when I introduced you at the beginning, I should have also included Rockstar Extraordinary as one of your titles. But, but you right. end up entering the workforce, so to speak, and then Rowboat Creative comes into your life. You start that company. You co-found that company. How does that transition happen? Um, so, I mean, you know, I guess the same situation of how, how the band started, to be honest. I mean, um, it really was kind of on a whim. So um, myself, obviously, we were, you know, we were doing the whole touring circuit. And that really was my main focus. And, you know, if you would have asked me when I was 16, 15 years old, what would be, what would be going on? You know, would this be here? It, I, I would have no answer nearly close to what is actual reality right now. Um, so, you know, myself and, um, and, and Joe, my, uh, my co-founder, he, uh, he was in, he was in the music industry too. I mean, that's how we met. And so we were both in, in different projects, but we were also kind of both the, uh, you know, the, the business leaders of it. And we were doing all of the, the creative design and we were doing all of the, the marketing for it. And so <clears throat> more specifically, I mean, for, for my project, I mean, because we were hitting the road a little bit harder, um, that's when all the, the major labels were, were really starting to crash. Um, the only, the only real source of revenue for, for musicians at that time, honestly, was, was merchandising and all of the labels were getting a little bit um, smarter or more predatory, I guess, at that point. And they were, 
they were trying to roll out deals that were were kind of deemed these 360 deals, which means they were taking, you know, 360 degrees of basically any part that they could take. So that was your touring, um, that was your licensing, that was your, your merchandising, you know, anything that they could sink their teeth into. And so, you know, we weren't on, obviously we weren't, you know, selling millions and millions of records. Um, and, you know, at that point when we were touring, we were realizing that, you know, we were making a, a very small amount of guarantee money from each show. And what was honestly keeping us alive and just moving us show to show was just the merchandise sales. So we um, we were specifically, I was doing all the designs and we were just sourcing all the, the, the apparel and merch to, uh, to a company in Chicago. <clears throat> and, you know, we'd get the orders back and colors would be wrong and, you know, the production quality would be bad. And, you know, coming from... Um, I have, you know, kind of a handful of, of different degrees um, in the design world from DePaul. And, you know, I was looking at it as like, I'm, I'm tired of having to wait for this company and, you know, getting orders late, getting them screwed up. So um, I picked up a beginning screen screen printing kit basically from, from Blick Art Materials or whatever it was called back then. Um, and I remember calling, calling Joe, my partner around Christmas and he had just gotten one for Christmas or just, or just bought one and, and basically just said, Hey, I, I just picked this up. You know, would you be into trying to, you know, we, I'm sure we can figure this out. It's not rocket science. And he literally said, I just got the exact same one. So let's try to try to mess around with it. And that, that literally was, was what kind of started the entire situation. And so we were just, we were going at it really hard just in his basement and, my um, lift point was doing a, a big CD release at, at Metro um, coming up. And it honestly wasn't until like Friday at around midnight that we even had our first successful print because um, we really had no idea what we were doing. And I had just grabbed a bunch of random blank apparel from from Target. And, you know, as soon as we got our first print, we just went to town and we printed everything. I brought it to the show on Saturday we sold out of everything. And, you know, at that moment we kind of went back and said, okay, well, here's all the money that, you know, we made for, for the band on selling the merch and here's all the money, you know, to take back to pay for whatever the overhead was for that. And that was kind of the, another <laughs> aha moment of like, well, wait, this is kind of confusing. We made money as a band and there's money that is left over here for us to take back and figure that out. So that was, you know, that really kind of just started to, to, to really push everything to motion. I mean, we had so many contacts in the music industry and, and everybody was really having the same pain points of, you know, getting just terrible customer service, terrible quality, and, and not really having that, you know, that grassroots relationship with them. So, you know, we just started to roll it out and said, Hey, we can give you better quality. We can give you better service. And, you know, we're really going to do this, you know, from the ground up, we haven't, we have a background in this, we're comfortable in this industry. And, you know, that kind of mentality really started to apply across all the industries that we, we deal with. And, you know, as soon as, as soon as words started to get out there, I mean, that's when it, all of our growth to this point really has been genuinely organic because, you know, people just love the relationships. They love that, you know, we have a team of people who are, who are highly educated and, and really passionate, you know, about what we're doing and trying to bring to the table for the industry. Back with more Discover Your Inner Awesome in just a moment, but first, are you an early stage startup? If so, you're probably running on the messaging treadmill where you're trying to figure out how to pitch your company, how to tell the story, how to communicate, market, and sell this thing that you've built. But for every step you take forward, you get pulled back one, just like you're on a treadmill, because you're either too in the weeds, too technical, or your attention is pulled in too many different directions. 
Oh, and on top of that, you're facing the everyday mental crisis of being an entrepreneur where you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe I am crazy. Maybe I should have listened to my family and just gotten that safe and secure six-figure job. Guess what? It's time to get off the treadmill. Introducing Hype Man Academy, my brand new affordable equity-free virtual accelerator designed to build a marketing playbook for your startup so you can confidently pitch investors with a clear and compelling message and go out and market and sell to get your first 10 or 20 or 30 customers. Hype Man Academy is a weekly live online workshop where you work alongside your fellow founders, support and help one another, and get one-on-one access with me through virtual office hours. For information on joining the next cohort, visit startuphypeman.com slash hypeman hyphen academy. That's startuphypeman.com slash hypeman hyphen academy. Fill out an application and let's discuss. Back now to our regularly scheduled programming. So for those who don't know, and if they if they just did not gather from, as you explained it there, Robo Creative at the end of the day is branded merchandise and apparel, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we're doing, you know, I mean, we're, we're heavily active in the music industry too, but I mean, we deal with a lot of um, marketing agencies. Um, we deal with a lot of unique designers and, um, you know, apparel apparel designers but um in a nutshell yes i mean we're 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 basically a merchandising company but we deal with um, custom apparel production and and pretty much any if you have a logo if you have something that needs to go on any sort sort of you know paraphernalia whether that's apparel or or hard goods um we we basically make that happen so you sort of you make that departure then and I'm imagining probably because order fulfillment just starts to pick up, right? That you make the departure away from music and perhaps maybe the touring life starts to wear, wear on you. Is that sort of what happened? Um, yeah. I mean, the, the business was, was definitely starting to pick up, but, but honestly the bigger departure and, and kind of just the slowing down of that was because, you know, at that point, you know, I was 10, 12 years into it pretty hard and, <clears throat> It was just, it was a really bad climate and atmosphere to be in the music industry. I mean, I think it still, still is, um, you know, as much as I love the industry, it's just a very, very, very tough, tough thing to do, um, for so many reasons, but, uh, specifically around that time, just because, I mean, we had, we had a lot of label interest and we had, you know, all, all that sort of stuff happening, but, but nobody wanted to make any moves because all the, uh, all the majors were folding, you know, that's when, you know, all the, the Napster stuff and, you know, Spotify hadn't even launched yet, but no one, no one knew what to do anymore. So it was kind of like everybody was just sitting and waiting. And, you know, I remember coming off of, you know, what was our, our last bigger tour. And I remember just sitting down and, and, you know, pretty specifically having conversation with, um, with my dad about this and saying, you know, he asked how the tour was and I was like, it was great, you know, great, great shows, great crowds and, you know, just great experience. We were touring with one of my biggest, you know, one of my biggest role models and influences. And, um, I just, I wasn't, I wasn't happy with it. I wasn't happy with the way that it was, it was turning my relationships, you know, whether that was, you know, with just friends and and family or, or whoever that was, because I, I felt, I felt like the industry, you know, it points you in a direction where you, you very single-handedly are kind of just, you're out there looking for what the next opportunity is. And I, and I found myself, the people that were surrounding us and, and I was surrounding myself with was, you know, they were friends, but they were just kind of more, they were friends that 
either needed something else or they had a means to an end for something for us. And, and it was just really tough because we would have all of our support system come, you know, to our Chicago shows. And, and I felt like I didn't have enough time to really even have a chance to say thank you and hang out with them because I was more focused on, you know, wanting to talk to the fans and, you know, trying to grow that base and grow that base. And I kind of just lost sight of, of what it was and, and writing and, and rehearsing kind of started to become more of a chore. And, that conversation with my, you know, my, as I said, my dad is, has, he knows how to play a gazillion different instruments. And I would watch him sit on the front porch and play mandolin and mandocello for hours and hours. And I would come out and just ask him, you know, why, why, what are you doing? Like, are you, are you writing material? And he's like, no, I'm just playing. And, and that concept had, you know, escaped me for, for so many reasons. And every time I sat down, you know, at the piano or with a guitar, it, I, I felt like I was writing for something specific that, you know, we have to write for the next single, we have to write for the next song that could be for placement. And I just felt like I completely lost sight of, you know, the reason for, you know, being able to have the talent to be able to play. So, you know, I, it was kind of just a... I guess, immaculate timing that the business, you know, was, was really starting to, to take form of something too. But I think I just, I needed just a breather from that because I'm, I'm so passionate about art. I'm so passionate about music and, and anything that I really put myself into a hundred percent. And I just felt like I kind of started to lose, lose my way in that realm. So I needed, I needed a breather from it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So then as rowboat picks up, um, you know, the business started in 2006, right? We're in 2018 now. Did ha, Has it been the same consistent business for the last 12, 13 years? Or have you had to face any pivots with Rowboat? Um, I mean, we... We've stayed, we've stayed the course. Um, if anything, we've kind of just like ex- expanded, I guess, our course a little bit more. I think the the main pivot points, you know, for us business wise has just been <clears throat> constantly, you know, getting over the, well, one, I mean, the, the first main pivot point was, was getting out of the basement. I mean, we had, you know, it was great because rent was free. Um, but, you know, we got to the point where we had, um, you know, freight trucks dropping off pallets and, um, they knew specifically that they couldn't be dropping off to residential. So, you know, we, fortunately we had some very cool delivery guides, um, that were, were cool with it for a little bit, but I mean, we were in, in my partner Joe's house and I mean, we were just boxes to the ceiling. We just, we couldn't, there was no more space to do anything and it was still just us two. And I mean, he was, he was still working his other job at a time. So, um, you know, we were kind of just burning the candle at, at all ends. So the, the first big pivot point, honestly, was, um, you know, kind of just mustering up the, uh, the belief and, and the balls to, to get out of there. And um, ironically, we went to where our first, our first facility was. Um, I was just kind of doing a walkthrough to, to potentially rent for another um, rehearsal space for, for the other music project that I was starting to work on. And um, it ended up just being a situation. It was where we could kind of put our feet down. And so we started in just about a thousand square feet there. And it was still just Joe and I um, kind of doing our whole thing. And, you know, about a year into it from there, it, it became kind of another pivot point of, of adding an employee. And I mean, that was just, you know, a completely scary moment for us because one, we didn't even know what that person was going to do. We needed help, but, you know, we didn't, we had never walked into this. It wasn't like we came from, you know, these big corporate settings and, you know, we had been used to being someone's boss and, you know, being, we just, we just wanted to, to make 
cool shit at a certain point. Um, so, you know, that was, I guess those were some, those were the most significant points, you know, right along that way. And then, you know, we've continued to pivot it. I mean, we just moved from, we were in that facility for, for about eight years and we just moved this, this last year and we went from about 7,000 square feet to, uh, to a little over 60,000. And so that was, you know, that was a bit of an undertaking too. And, you know, just, just continuing to, to pivot and understand that, you know, there's going to be these moments, you know, we, we call it kind of just running, running into the fire. And some, sometimes that's just the, the best way to do it because you either, you have one mental, you know, option basically is we're going to make this work or it's not going to work. And so then you're kind of left just to, to making it work. Yeah. And, you know, as you talk about some of these examples here, getting out of the basement being sort of exhibit a pivot one, um, I, I know you had to do it because, like you said, they can't be delivering pallets to residential addresses. But <laughs> right. At the same time, like your overhead increases so significantly as a result of that, right? So you go from your margins being significantly reduced because you're rent free to having to pay rent and perhaps a decent amount of rent. So right. what goes into that decision? I, I know you have to make the decision, but then what goes into the decision making process around how much can we spend? Uh, how much do we really need? Or are you just kind of like, we just need to find something? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, that's a great point because I mean, even, you know, when we were making the decision to make the jump from our previous facility to, to our current, um, I mean, that was, that was a very serious conversation and, and we both sat down and it was, you know, look, we can, we're, we're doing well where we are at this altitude. Um, you know, do we want to go harder? Do we want to continue to grow this? And is this still just in our pipeline of, you know, what our, our bigger mission and our, our bigger dream is about this. And, you know, we, we kind of consistently are saying, you know, we're, we're just going to continue to go hard while we still have, you know, our, our youthful energy and, uh, and, and all that as much as we can. But, um, like you said, I mean, that, that's, that's a really good point. I mean, we could have, we could have just not chosen to move. And at that point, um, you know, we could have, I just don't think we would have been able to continue to grow because we, we didn't have the capacity there. I mean, we were so overrun just by the size of orders that, you know, we would have just kind of started to have to scale back a little bit, but, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I think we both collectively felt that, you know, our, our job, you know, trying to push this industry forward and trying to just continue on with what our, what we set out to do is, is not over yet. So until we get to that point, you know, where we're just, I guess, <laughs> stretched to too many lengths, you know, we'll, we'll continue to do it. And we're also, I mean, you know, we're, we're not as green as we were back then because, um, you know, we're a little bit more seasoned in it. And so we're doing things more intelligently and, and trying to, to make sure that, um, you know, the infrastructure is there and that, you know, we really create a great sense of, of, you know, culture and, and what everybody wants to be there for, you know, we're just not, you know, I could go on a completely different tangent about how we're really trying to flip the industry on its head and this whole misconception of how, um, how the manufacturing industry is and, you know, thinking that you just, that the manufacturing industry is just kind of this, this end, end road, you know, if, if you didn't have opportunity to go to college, if, if you don't really know what to do and, you know, you have to work in this dark, dingy, you know, factory and, you know, there's no, there's no more opportunity in life for you. And, 
And that is kind of the complete opposite. And, and we're doing, we do a lot of programs with the city. We do a lot, you know, kind of industry wise to, to bring in anybody who, you know, who's interested in, in this aspect of it. And, and yes, it is production. Yes, there's manufacturing involved too, but, you know, we're, we're trying to flip it on its head and show that, you know, this is a really interesting and cool atmosphere to, to work in. And we're all working together as a team to, you know, create, you know, whether that's designs for, you know, production for the Cubs, you know, production for individual designers, production for, you know, big box um, corporations that, that are, that are just out there in the world. So, I mean, there's, there's kind of a lot that, that goes into it, but I think that that, that moment of, you know, making that next decision just came down to, you know, the fact that I just, we weren't done yet. So, you know, let's just go, go big or go home. Yeah. And, you know, some of the couple, a couple of things you said that I want to just elaborate on and, and feel free to chime in as, as I, as I say this here. So you talked about how, like, specifically with the move to an actual office slash warehouse, like you needed to do that to be able to grow. And I, and I think this is a really important point here because this is why pivots happen, right? Like your growth is stalled or it's going backwards. So you have to ch- make a change in order to ultimately grow the business. And, and something, you know, I, I, I've kind of learned the hard way this year is like, I, I'm going through a pivot myself right now, but, but even with that, the reason why, you know, and this, this may seem like business 101, but I think a lot of people may overlook it because I overlooked it, um, mm-hmm. is you pretty much have to, you have to grow your revenue every year. And, and here's why, because let, let's say in a given year, just to use like even numbers, let's say a company makes in a year $100,000, okay? Mm-hmm. But you got to factor in taxes on that. We'll we'll just say roughly thirty thousand bucks in taxes. Okay, so you really only netted seventy thousand at the end of the day, right? And you're going to have to pay that off. So if you only do seventy thousand the next year, you're already paying the thirty thousand from the previous year to the IRS. Plus now <laughs> you're going to probably pay about ten to twelve thousand on this seventy thousand. So now you're exactly. only netting like like you can essentially if you don't grow you can essentially tax yourself out of a business at the end of the day, mm-hmm. and isn't that lovely? Yeah, and and, and again, <laughs> like I I got hit with a huge tax uh, in April, and I was like, oh my god, <laughs> yeah, and that's that's been you know a, a big contributing factor to where you know I'm pivoting now uh, to you know, and part of it is a rebrand to the startup hype man name. Um, adding services, creating a self-service product for earlier stage companies. And, you know, part of that was driven by just realizing, like, I, I can't keep going at the same rate. The other thing is that I realized, and it's something I had always known, it just took that tax thing to really trigger me to action, is right. I didn't have, I, I, I had not had a sustainable business model. I had, I had I created and provided a really good service that people were willing to pay for, but as a business model, it, it's not sustainable um, because it's entirely reliant on my own time, energy, and resources, which is sure. where I'm like, okay, I have to make some changes here. So when we sort of like come back to this larger topic here of surviving the pivot, you know, we've just identified when you pivot, but in terms of surviving it, what's some advice you have to be able to get through this? <clears throat> um. I mean, I think, I mean, you're, yeah, you're, you're in the thick of it right now, but I think that, you know, one before 
I guess before we even get into that, I think that it's it's just super important to understand that that's you know, and you can also speak on this too. That there's there's no sense that that's any part of failure. It's just about realizing that okay, well, you're you're just looking at it from a little bit more of an intelligent angle. I mean, even if it is failure on some in some sense, um, you know, who cares? I mean, it doesn't, you're no one, no one is reporting to some big failure, uh, you know, principle (laughs) at at a certain point. Yeah. Failure (laughs) boss. Um, so I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess my, my, my advice in, in all those situations are just to, to really keep, keep the course, you know, I mean, there's no one, there's no one out there that is going to be able to, to, to give you the advice. There's no one out there with the crystal ball that is going to say that this is going to work. And, you know, as, as kind of cliche and, and cheesy as that sounds, you know, that, that is just what's internally in you. And I think that, however that that's, you know, been built from years of experience or, you know, years of failure, years of success, whatever that is too. I think that, that those are just the important things just to understand. I mean, I, I do, <clears throat> I do a lot of triathlons. I do a lot of races and I do, um, a lot of individual training. And I think that those, like those moments to me, I mean, yes, I came, you know, kind of from an athletic background, but, um, those moments to me are just so applicable across the world of, you know, business and and everything in life that when you set your mind to something that there should be nobody that can break that, you know, if if you just decide I'm going to conquer this, I'm going to do this, and this is what it's going to be, then, you know, that is at least to me that that's all that I need. And yeah, you know, you can have support and you can have, you know, cheerleaders along the way for it. But um, I think that's, that's, that's the biggest thing. And just, you know, mentally, mentally setting some time for you to, to pick and choose what is that goal? You know, if it is that pivot moment, okay, this is not working or I'm, I'm finding these pain points or here are these hurdles, you know, step back from everything, knock everything down, you know, metaphysically and, you know, or physically, whatever, whatever you need to do, but, um, you know, step away from everything and just sit down and put everything down in the ground and just say that, you know, am am I passionate about this? Am I happy with where this is going? You know, if this continues on this path for five years, am I going to be happy with this? You know, how can I just start to be in control of, of that destiny and, and just kind of creating and, you know, controlling your destiny. I mean, that's kind of the quintessential, um, you know, how many business entrepreneurial books talk about that. And, you know, Tony Robbins asking, hopefully I'm not misread as, as one of those people, but, um, <laughs> Um, um, but I mean, I have a lot of great things to say about that too, but you know, I think there's a lot of misconception about that too. But, um, I think that, I don't know. I mean, I, you just have to be true to yourself and you have to be true to your beliefs. And if you have, you know, partners in that, you have to all be aligned in that and and going 100% in that right direction and knowing that you are going to hit the hurdles. You're going to hit the deep end. You're going to hit fires and, you know, it's okay, fine, pivot and run around the fire then, or, you know, just go right through the fire and, you know, just keep, keep moving and keep moving, I guess. We are getting towards the end of our episode here. Before we wrap up, can you let our listeners know where they can learn more about Rowboat Creative, where they can learn more about you, find you, get in touch with you? Sure. Um, Yeah. I mean, again, thank you. Thank you for having me. I mean, any, any of these opportunities to, you know, to be able to talk to, to one person, whether it's just a conversation between you and I, or, you know, anybody listening or anybody, you know, hopefully inspired. I mean, 
I always like to, to step back from from any of these moments and just preface it and say that I don't I don't really care if anybody um, you know ever remembers my name, remembers the company. Um, you know, of course, I'd love for you to remember the company and remember my name, and you know, <laughs> do great things with us too. But you know, if there's if there's one thing that anybody just takes away from it and, and walks away from is that, you know, I remember hearing something interesting from some interesting guy somewhere. So, um, me personally, um, you know, I'm, I'm on social media, um, on, on Instagram is Lucas ideas. That's where I have kind of some of my other photography, um, and all my personal stuff too, but robot creative, um, www.robocreative.com. Not that I need to say www anymore in 2018, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, robocreative.com um i'm on linkedin as well lucas gariglia and um yeah we're chicago based so um we're always open to to talk ideas and and talk opportunities with anybody or you know if there's if there's anybody who just wants to kind of talk shop about you know anything we talked about i'm i'm always all all ears and i i know i told you raj that i'm I'm the Italian guy, so I can talk for, for hours and hours about everything, especially if I'm passionate about it. So don't get me started on business or music because it'll go for five hours. <laughs> and for everyone listening, uh, if you missed any of the sort of where to find Lucas, you can always find it. We link it up in the show notes every episode on our website. So to close up, the way we end our shows is by doing a sort of wrap up and giving what we believe based on our conversation today is our respective answer to this topic question, how do you survive a pivot? I'll go first and then I'll serve it up to you, Lucas. So sure. the topic being, how do you survive a pivot? I believe after listening to you talk and reflecting on my own experience, I, I my answer for this, and as I bring up again that like, you know, I got hit with the tax and that kind of like forced me to do something different. And, and I think in your case, you like had these pallets coming and they were like, we can't do this anymore. Right. Um, I, I think first off, if I were to do, do this over, if I were to rewind a little bit, I wouldn't wait for the hammer to drop. So I think you can, there are things you can recognize are happening, things you can feel as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, that you're like, this is, this might become an issue later on. But until it becomes so grave an issue, I think we have a tendency to just be like, yeah, I'll deal with it later. Absolutely. And I think the earlier we can recognize that it's something that it's like, ah, something doesn't feel right here. Something's not totally working and really make a concerted effort to make that pivot earlier. I think, I think we'll all be better off in the end as a result. Yeah. You have, I mean, you, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I'm done. Go ahead. You tell me oh. your answer. Yeah. How do you survive um, a pivot? No, I, I mean, I think you, you have to be perceptive. I mean, in anything, um, you know, whether you're, you're riding the train or, you know, walking in a different, area of the world that you have no idea. I mean, you just got to be, you know, kind of open to your surroundings and perceptive. And, you know, I think that applies to, to the business atmosphere and, and climate, you know, as well. I mean, there's certain things that you can see coming and there's certain things that you just absolutely cannot. And I think that you just have to be braced at all points, you know, that, um, you know, whether, whether that's in your focus and, you know, just always being prepared because who knows? I mean, the, the building could burn down tomorrow. I mean, shirts and, you know, apparel could no longer be cool. You know, we could go into a complete nudist, you know, <laughs> world for the, for the rest of life. And so then we're, we're kind of, then you'll become business, a tattoo but, parlor. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bring shirts back. Um, but I think, you know, just, just 
prepping and just being there. And, you know, when the hammer does drop, you know, if you can do your best to, to really kind of start to, to focus on, you know, being prepared for if it does drop, but when it does drop, just knowing that, okay, that's fine. Let's just figure out a way to pick up the hammer or just figure out a way to move around the hammer, I guess. Um, I mean, that's, that's kind of just my, my biggest insight, you know, just don't, don't, don't be afraid of when that hammer is going to drop. Cause at a certain point, something's going to happen. You know I mean? Shit's going to hit the fan eventually somewhere, but you know, I think any entrepreneur that is out there, anybody that is trying to, to carve a different path, anybody who's looking to take a different road, you know, just have to be prepared and, and probably somewhere along the lines has already prepared themselves knowing that, you know, this is, it's not going to be easy. And there are no, there really are no answers. You know, I mean, you can read a, a, a billion different business books and you can listen to a million different podcasts. But, you know, just as I said, I mean, my, all my information and insight, you know, could be completely, completely nonsense to somebody because your path is going to be completely different from many of ours. So, you know, I think just be, be steadfast and just, you know, kind of roll with the punches and know that, you know, if, if you get, if you get hit hard, then, then that's it. Just, you know, either come back and hit harder or figure out that you don't want to be in a game that hits that hard. And then, you know, maybe pivot and go to, to something else with some, some foam involved, maybe. <laughs> Lucas Gariglia, rockstar extraordinaire, co-founder, president, <laughs> director of sales for Robo Creative, and also known as some guy with some piece of advice somewhere along the way. <laughs> some Italian guy. <laughs> Thank you for joining us and actually uh, kicking off season 10 of the podcast with us. Yeah, Raj, thank you very much. Like I said, I really appreciate the time. And hopefully anybody out there listening, uh, you know, let's let's do something great together. That wrapped up our conversation. Did you, the listener, enjoy this episode? If so, the absolute best compliment you can give is a rating and review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews help more people find the show. Therefore, more people can discover their inner awesome. And if you want to extend that compliment further, while you're leaving that review, go ahead and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you listen, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or the various other networks in which you can find this show. For full show notes, references, and resources, as well as access to the over 100-episode archive, visit the podcast official site, www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com. And remember, for tips, strategies, and ideas on how to build up your company's hype with a message that sings, visit StartupHypeMan.com. Season 10's theme song is from Sir the Baptist. The song is called Dance with the Devil. It is off his album Saint or Sinner, which you can grab on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, and anywhere else digital music is distributed. That'll tie a bow on this one. Thank you again to this week's guest for joining us. I am Raj Nation. You have been listening to Startup Hype Man's Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. We will see you next time. But in the meantime, take care and be awesome today. It's a dance with the devil.